All right, welcome everybody. This is Behind the Wheels Podcast. I am your host, DJ Artistic. I am a DJ, a traveling DJ based in Los Angeles, California. I would like to introduce you all to my host, EB. EB, let them know. What's going on, everybody? This is EB. I am writer, blogger, content creator, and lover of everything black, the musicologist. We have a lot of things to discuss today, so let's go ahead and get into it. As far as just a quick uh, catch-up, I mean, it's been a couple of months since we had our season finale, but a lot has happened even in the last couple of days and weeks. So I know as far as verses goes, um, we had the verses between the locks and Dipset, and we're saying this, you know, before we're actually watching it because we're recording it before it actually shows. So me and EB can act as if we've already seen that, so... AB, what you think about that versus that locks that dip set? It was, man. You know what? Going into it, I will say that I thought locks had it easy. I was just like, you know, locks got it all. I mean, they got the Jada Kiss features. They got everything they done with Bad Boy. But I will say Dipset kind of reminded me that they had some hits. Like, they... They had some songs that I actually had forgotten all about. It wasn't like the sweep I thought it would be. I won't say I won't say Dipset won, but I won't say they lost. Like I, it, it's one of those things where the locks, yeah, you know, I think they're great, but Dipset proved themselves yeah. to me a little bit. Yeah, I mean, to me, I've always seen them as the type of groups where they're both super New York, but in the the most different ways that you, you could that you could think of it, because I feel like. Even the memes are hilarious. They show like the Timberlands for the locks and the Air Force for Dipset. Like it really is how it's the Harlem verse, how other parts of New York are. I mean, the locks always had that grittiness, that mm-hmm. straight lyrical edge, but Dipset personality always shows. And they just had those, they had a little bit more diversity in their music and their singles. So I agree with that. I feel like Dipset had a lot of dope music together and separately. And they go back far too. I mean, because my first time seeing Cameron was probably that three five seven with Mace back in that was what ninety eight. So it was definitely an enjoyable, enjoyable verses right there. So along with that verses, of course, everybody's been talking about. You know, we, we we mentioned cancel culture last season a few times, but it keeps on coming back up. And I think this might be one of the first times we've really seen cancel culture go into actual effect at this level with the baby. Uh, the baby, for those who didn't see it, for one, he brought up Tory Lanez, who we all know, I mean, allegedly uh, shot Megan Thee Stallion, you know, and the baby brought him up. And I think that's what kind of brought the, the attention to the fact that the baby asked everybody in the crowd to put their lights up in some very derogatory ways against the LGBTQ community. And with that, most of the time, you know, people cancel folks on Twitter, but that's only on Twitter. You you go outside in real life. People don't care as much. But in this case, the baby lost, as they said, the bookings and that <laughs> and the bag and and the money got affected. And and it shows that to me, this is, this is probably the first time I could think of an artist getting canceled from this many back to back huge festivals. And with the timing of pandemic still going on, but the world kind of reopening and it's been a year, year and a half off with no festivals. And now with these festivals coming back and he's getting taken off of all these major festivals as a headliner, it's one of the first times we've seen actual cancel culture go into effect. And to me, I mean, I'll let you speak on it first. I mean, the baby is about to be sitting in the house for a minute. Like, (laughs) it's one thing to be canceled, like you said, on social media and people just not going to stream you or listen to your music. But... It's affecting his money. Like, it's a year 
Oh, we've been in the pandemic for more than a year. Festivals are coming back as a performing artist. Like that's actually what you need, especially rising like he is. Like you want to you want to get seen on these huge festivals and like the announcements just keep coming like he's being removed. Now, I am curious about if he's not getting paid or if it's just he'll still get paid but he won't be performing, but We've never seen it this way because, in my opinion, it's never happened on the scale that it's happened. He offended, like, a lot of people, not just, you know, not yeah. just his core fan base, not just his fans. Like, he uh, he offended a whole community of actually two whole communities of people he offended. And when he yeah. did so, he doubled down on it, like, repeatedly. Like, <laughs> that, and that, yeah. I think that's really what did him in because I honestly still believe that if he had said what he said and moved on, people would have eventually did the same thing. Like it, it would have still been, we don't mess with you, but it wouldn't be where he's being pulled from festivals. Another thing that did him in is that he's coming up on the pop charts now. Like he's working with some big names. Yeah. So people yeah. don't want their brand to be associated in any way, shape or form with yours whenever you're <laughs> offending someone's entire fan base. And that's just like, that was his mistake that he kept doubling down on it. Had he shut up, it would have been something people like why worldwide, we would have remembered. We would have, you know, talked about it. But it wouldn't have affected his money. I don't think so. I agree. I feel like and once again with the with the uh jokes off of his name, <laughs> he needs the publicist to like step their <laughs> game up because it's as you said, he kept on doubling down and his responses just got worse and worse. He was so defensive about it, he was so arrogant about it. And the thing to me is that I will say, yes, like there are plenty of rappers and singers who have done worse things that didn't get canceled in any way or did not lose things. And even with that, I don't feel bad for him. I mean, it's timing. Everything is different. Culture shifts. Like people said, some people, I mean, have short memories too. So people claim that, that, you know, Eminem didn't get canceled for saying stuff back 20 years he ago. He definitely and I'm did. I'm like, you, he definitely <laughs> got a lot of negative attention. Yeah. It's just that in that time frame, it's like for one, it was more accepted to speak a certain way. And that controversy almost made him bigger because it made the sales go higher because it's like, oh, what's so offensive? Let me buy it to hear it myself. And it was where, I mean, we saw that Elton John came out with him and, you know, and performed with him. And it's been jokes about Lil Nas doing a show with the baby at the <laughs> Grammys next year just off of and it might him happen. apologizing. It, I wouldn't be shocked if it did happen. But, yeah, it's like with that, I feel like it's just a different time period. Like, aside from race, it's just that this, this time in culture – it's certain things you can't say that you shouldn't say. And uh, one thing that some folks, especially from the South, mentioned, which I didn't think of it that way, but I mean, I don't agree or disagree, but I don't agree for sure, is that what the baby was doing was a play on what we've seen a lot of DJs in the South do. And like when, when people reminded me, I'm like, they did do that in Florida a lot. Yeah. Like the whole, if you ain't got no STD, put your phone yeah. up, you know. He, but even that, he okay, did that. that's one small thing. But He's not in those crowds anymore. He's on a wide yeah, it's not in those scale crowds. now. Like yeah. he, he is a exactly. And exactly. his mistake is that also he's doing it too early in his career. By the time the, that came out with Eminem and the controversy, Eminem was already in with the hits. If you ask yeah. the average person today to name two or three songs from the baby, they can't. Not not like pop audiences anyway. So that's his mistake yeah. is that you you're not there yet to be able to do this, which is why people like Kanye yeah. won't get canceled. Which is why somebody like Chrisette huh. could kinda get canceled because you didn't put mm, in the work yet. Yeah. Like you're not there yet. He should have shut up. Yeah. He really should have shut yeah. up. Yeah. He definitely should have. That's that's the main mistake he made. So I mean, 
We'll see what happens. I mean, I'm not going to wish for nobody's downfall at that level, but I mean, people just got to smarten up. They have to smarten up. And I, I'll say this real quick, just like, not that it matters a whole lot, but it's just little stuff I catch. Like, like I, I happened to be at a club where he was at about a month and a half ago. And just the smallest stuff, like most of the time, if it's a rapper there, like, of course, I wasn't DJing this night. I'm just hanging out. But I walk right past him. We make eye contact. I say, oh, what's up? Black man saying what's up, whatever. He looks straight through me and keeps walking. And I'm like, this is an arrogant. Oh, he dude. did the Aretha Franklin. I can just like Yeah, I can just sense his energy wow. being arrogant like that. So even small stuff like that, it's like that's not personal enough for me to stop playing music. But when it comes to everything else he's done, it shows like he really is that arrogant type who thinks he's on top of the world. So we'll see what happens. That's all I can say. So, well, let me ask this real quick. Yeah. Because you are the yeah. international DJ. Are you still gonna be playing his music in your sets though? Like is it is it something where DJs are shying away hmm. from it now? Or if you're in the right crowd and the crowd wants to hear it, like if you go to Charlotte, North Carolina, hmm. like that's I'm the, pretty sure they still want to hear the baby. That's the funniest part about it. So here's the thing about it with him. I mentioned this on social media. I said, basically, so the thing with cancel culture is that, as we always see, what people say on social media is different from real life. Because there's some people, DJs and clubs, who still play R. Kelly, yeah. who still play whoever else... Even Tory Lanez. Like, so with Tory, I stopped playing Tory. At the same time, Tory didn't have enough hits that I just had to play. Right. Tory don't have back that thing up. He don't have a poison. He don't have a no guidance. So with the baby, it's kind of the same at this point. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's not 2019. Suge and Babysitter are played out at this point. He has some songs that can work. If I play Bop, people going to dance to it, but I don't have to play that. The biggest song that he has to me that people actually react to is with Meg. And that's Meg's song. And that's Cash It. So it's like, and with that, it's the like irony. people do like his one verse. Yeah, the irony of it. So it's like the only song I'm playing with him on it really is a Meg song. Right. Ironically. So it's like, it's no basically because I don't have to play like Masterpiece was a, a lukewarm hit. It's like I was playing it on Twitch before this whole thing happened. People were like, all right, it's cool, but it wasn't big enough. So to me, I'll, I'll admit, if he had some big enough songs that were like undeniable, right. I don't think what he did was worth me never playing him again. Right. But because I already don't care for how he's moving right now, and because he hasn't had that firepower, that's really what it's about sometimes. So that's where it is. Because he, he apologized, and even the apology was kind of kind of BS. <laughs> yeah, so, it was a yeah. It was a, it was a kind of yeah. funny apology, blaming the people for yeah, blaming them for not yeah, educating yeah. him. I mean, after you yeah. kept doubling down, but you know, I wish I yeah. wish this young man the best. I hope that. He gets some people on his team. I hope his publicist takes away his phone. Like he's gonna <laughs> yeah, have to go on an apology seriously. tour. Like like you said earlier, they were joking about him and Lil Nas X. Yeah. But I can see something like that coming down. Like he's gonna have to do something for the LGBT community for them yeah. to um, officially release him from the terms of his cancellation. If that makes sense. That's definitely that's definitely the way I see it right now. So moving on to our first segment. Our first segment that we have today is called Rewind. <laughs> In the Rewind segment, we like to highlight artists from the past who made impact. Some of them are uns unspoken and unsung heroes, and there are some who are complete legends. But either way, we want to we highlight those artists from the past. So uh, for this episode, uh, episode number one of season two, EB, who would you like to highlight for uh, this episode for Rewind? I'm highlighting um, going across the pond again to England. Uh-oh. <laughs> Hill Street Soul. Is actually a duo that most people just think is a solo singer, but um, it's comprised of Hill, 
who is originally from Zambia, and Victor, who goes by VRS. He's the producer for the group. Much in the same way that Groove Theory was Amel and Bryce, this is Hill Street Soul. They came out in the very early 2000s. They had a cover of Aretha Franklin's until you, oh, Stevie Wonders, depending on which version, until you come back to me, that blew up in huh. England. And they were automatically grouped into the neo soul sound that was huge in America at the time that was going on. So they came out with their first album, Soul Organic, in 2000. Um, they came back with Copesthetic and Cool two years later. And that album was one of the ones that actually gave them their first US hit um, with a cover of the Isley Brothers for The Love of You. Um, Since then, they've released about four albums. It's it's tricky putting them in the rewind because she's still, or they are still working. They just released a single a few months ago. But for people who get into the Jill Scotts, or if you get into um, the Indie Irees, the Erica Badus, I think you'll definitely, definitely love Hill Street Soul. And they have have some jams. Uh, uh, When I was working for the radio station, they were one of the people that we played most, like they were one of those groups where uh-huh. they, they kind of spanned like age range, like the younger people kind of like certain songs that they had because of the production yeah. that uh, VRS put into it. But uh, older people really loved it because it was a throwback to, you know, the, the Neo soul sound with like Angie Stone. And it was, it was something that hmm. people could kind of vibe out to. So Hill Street Soul is my rewind for the first episode of season two. Hill Street Soul. I used to hear their name and didn't really hear their music until years after they came out. So with them, uh, do you know if there was any reason that they didn't really get to that commercial level? Or was it just that their sound was not really even aiming for you that know what? At the I time? think a lot of it is just because they were strict like R&B. Like there were not many mm. um, pop elements. Like I don't see them being able to get major play on a pop station. And yeah. also because a lot of people who do find pop success, they find it with certain producers. Being that this is a group with the producer who's already in the group, oh, wow. like it, it kind of yeah. limits, I don't want to say limits where they can go, but it limits the listening audience because people won't be exposed if they're not a fan of certain producers. But I think their music is great. Area. Honestly, um, I, I, I won't say that they are better than anybody, but they are just as good as a lot of the artists that we love today, a lot of the R&B artists that we love. Hmm. Definitely, definitely. I, I want everybody to check out Hill Street Soul because they they definitely do deserve that, that respect and that love. So shout out to Hill Street Soul. For uh, my, my rewind for this episode, I got to tribute the legend, the legendary Biz Marquis, rest in peace. So he did unfortunately pass a couple of weeks ago and... Of course, just like some other artists that we've had recently who were sick, there are rumors maybe two or three weeks before he actually passed that he did pass, you know, but he was probably, you know, declining in health, I would say, at that at that point. But we have lost him at this point. And Biz Marquis is one of my favorite just icons in hip-hop, period. He's the type that he did everything. So, of course, everyone knows that he came out back around, like, 1988, I would say. He came out and had had a couple of his smash hits that we still know and sing today. Like, his very first uh, album was back in 88. I think it was uh, going off back in 88. And with that, it was like he came out just off the top with the vapors and make the music with your mouth. And, like, Nobody Beats the Biz. Those are songs that you still hear on those classic hip-hop stations. And Vapors is just, just one of those songs, like, I'm assuming, you know, I'm, I'm young, I'm not from New York, but I'm guessing that Vapors was slang back then, or if it wasn't slang, maybe he made it slang, whatever it was. 
I love the fact that Snoop remade that song by 96, 97, because it's one of those this storytelling songs that was just so perfect. Like, I remember hearing that song and just really being caught up in it as a kid, like just thinking like, that, that's how it really goes. Like, like, once you make it to a certain level of success, everybody is on you, everybody is following you. And it almost was like a cautionary tale back then. It's just, damn, it feels good to see people up on it. That's just one of the most iconic hip hop lines ever. Like, I just love hearing that line. So he had that. And Make the Music With Your Mouth biz was just such a banger. And the way they flipped that piano sample that Mary ended up using later on and even the little drum break, the snare break that Maya and Jay-Z used. Mm-hmm. Like, the thing with Biz is that he, of course, he's known for that sampling case where he got sued and that did kind of change up the sampling laws. But on the flip side, a lot of hip-hop artists ended up sampling him and R&B artists as well. So, obviously, his biggest song ever was Just a Friend. And it's where... Uh, I do hate the fact that a lot of folks only know him for that one song, but at the same time, it shows how powerful that song was. And it's one of those that even your parents, your parents know and grandparents, and you go to a, a Caucasian only bar and they're still singing it in there and at sporting events and young kids know it. And I remember hearing that on the radio as a kid and my mom was just like, shake her head. Like, what is this nonsense? Cause I was just love singing, singing off key with him, but it, he had so much personality. He was a great personality Back when hip-hop, you know, I hate sounding like an old man, but back when hip-hop, back in my day, it wasn't even my day, it was before my day, but back when it was it was cool to just be a, a, a silly, fun, like, enjoyable person to be around. Like, in that Fat Boys era, even with Heavy D and them, Biz was like the, the ultimate uh, persona of that. I mean, the fact that he was able to go from that era to doing Men in Black 2, being a beatboxing alien, to being on Yo Gabba Gabba, and I didn't even know what Yo Gabba Gabba was, because I don't have kids, but... Back when I was working, I had coworkers who were like, oh, you don't know what Yo Gabba Gabba is? That's all my kids want to watch. That's like the new Sesame Street. And they got uh, some DJ uh, DJ Lance, and then they have Biz Marquis goes on there. And I'm like, oh, Biz Marquis is on the kids' show now. That's crazy. And it's like, it just showed how much he was able to expand his, his reach doing TV shows like that, having classic songs, and then being a dope DJ. You go to, if you went to any of his shows, like he even performed at FAMU Homecoming one year, but he would do so many shows worldwide and just seeing the energy that he brought to those crowds and those sets was just always so dope to me. So Biz is definitely going to be missed. And I, I think, um, I think it's one of those cases where he had, he's one of those rare cases that he had impact in so many different lanes. It wasn't just the music. It was that he had the, the personality that, that, that showed that just watching his interviews, just watching him behind scenes, just, just seeing how he was always the same. It was never like he was putting on the character. Like he would be behind scenes just dancing and battle rapping and battle dancing against the videographers. He was that type of dude. So Biz is definitely gonna be missed. Yeah, no, I I think like he was one of the first people. I, when I think about uh, people bringing like a sillier personality to hip hop, I think about him. Yeah. I think about Slick Rick, and I think about Grand Poobah. Slick Rick. Like I think about yeah. him in terms of. Um, just that they had fun with it. Like you can look at the title of Biz's songs, like Picking Boogers or like, you know, make <laughs> yeah. the music with your mouth or just a friend. Like you looking at the song yeah. and you're like, who is this dude? But um he had like this huge personality and that's what shined through the most. And I uh, just a couple of weeks ago actually was rewatching the um Roxanne Shante story on uh Netflix and just seeing him in there well the him being portrayed in the movie as you know yeah. somebody who did not come out when Roxanne came out but was you know trying to get his start trying to get his start 
and they mm -hmm. remained friends up until like the day that he died and she actually even spoke yeah. at his funeral so i just i think um he was mm -hmm. one of the people that's probably most loved in hip-hop um sure. because even like dave Chappelle had you know released a statement about the passing of uh biz i think everybody in the industry anybody who's been in the industry who has met this man has had to release a statement because that's just how huge his personality was he was that type he was just a regular dude like i only saw him in person maybe a few times like of course djing but the, the closest i ever got to him just outside of that we saw him in hollywood at a denny's he put up in a regular ultima and it was like i remember my friends having jokes like how biz marquee in an ultima and i'm like that's how it really is like and he was solo he didn't have security it was just like he didn't have to stunt. He wasn't. He wasn't out there trying to floss. It was like it just fits his personality. Like yeah. I can't even see Biz in a Bentley. It made sense that he was in the Ultimate. No, yeah, yeah. I, I know people with yeah. similar stories in Maryland because he like would be wow. in PG County out there. And my sister ran oh, into wow. him at like a seafood restaurant one day, just in the parking lot, and yeah. he stopped and talked to her yeah. like they had been friends for years. And it's kind of like <laughs> you know, it. it's, he was it. that kind of guy where he was so down to earth. Yeah. You know, he he never got a yeah. big head about who he was or you know how popular he was because everybody knew Biz Marquis. And if people who don't even know yeah. Biz Marquis, you know songs that have sampled music. Biz Marquis. So he was one of yeah. those guys that you know, fame aside, he was just cool. He really was so. He'll definitely be missed. So rest in peace to the legendary Biz Marquis. So to keep it moving, our next segment is called Fast Forward. So what we do is highlight the artists who are on their way up, you know, seeing their rise and growth right now. We want to highlight them and let the audience know about what they have in store. So EB, who would you like to highlight for this episode? This episode, I'm doing something a little different. I'm going to go with Brittany okay. Howard of the Alabama Shakes. Um, she's really? she's more okay. blues okay. And so yeah. more rock than R&B, but her roots are definitely, you know, an artist like Dionne Warwick or a James Brown or an Aretha Franklin, you know, people that she cites as her influences. She actually mm. plays the piano. She plays the drums. She sings. She writes. She composes. She produces. She does everything. She started the Alabama Shakes in the early 2010s, and they pulled from everybody like led zeppelin david bowie and people like drake beyonce and childish gambino have always cited the alabama shakes and specifically britney howard as being yeah. influencing like they've released articles where drake is talking about he loves the alabama shakes beyonce is like no wow. i love that britney howard girl because she's just so amazing so with the alabama shakes they uh actually have four grammys they had two for their song, Don't Want to Fight, and one for an album that came out in 2016 called Sound and Color. That is the one where most people recognize or, you know, that's when the Alabama Shakes reached the next plateau in their career was when they when they mm. released Sound and Color. Um, she listens to everything. Like, she listens to Elvis. She listens to Mavis Staples, Tina Turner, Black oh, Sabbath, wow. Pink Floyd. So in 2008, 19 she released a solo album called jamie jamie was the one like she got five nominations for the album grammy nominations and one win for the song stay high like she's just a force that's huh. unstoppable like she has amazing stage presence and she really throws huh. it back to like the roots of not just r&b but also with rock and roll like like she's like sister rosetta huh. tharp again because it's just you oh, know wow. this amazing woman on stage with her guitar and when she opens her mouth like 
she manipulates her voice in ways that I miss other people doing on a mainstream level. Like sometimes it's very Tina Turner and other times it's very Dionne Warwick. Like she has that versatility. That makes a lot of sense. Cause like you said, um, Alabama Shakes, they've been around for a minute and I always saw them as being like more on that blues kind of rockish side. But as you said, like now that you, you mentioned it, it makes sense. I've watched their performances and felt like even with that, I still feel that soul and that R&B in there. And I never even knew what her name was. Um, on her own until you mentioned it. Yeah, so. yeah, no, she's she's yeah. like, I think when people first took notice of um, the Alabama Shakes, they noticed yeah. her not knowing that, you know, she started the band because she was the front woman. But after a while, she decided to release her own solo album. And when that came out is when, you know, everybody started talking about, oh yeah, we love the Alabama Shakes. We love Brittany Howard. Mm. But it wasn't until then, like wow. she had to kind of separate herself and step out. Now she's still working with the Alabama Shakes, but she also has okay. her own solo career. Makes a lot of sense. I'm definitely gonna check out her solo projects. I haven't heard them yet. Yeah. So definitely salute to uh, Brittany Howard for that. So for my fast forward for this episode, so I'm gonna uh, uh, stay at home with this one. So there's a rapper from a, a city outside of LA called San Pedro kind of a mixed type city but his name is Rimble so Rimble how do I describe Rimble so I'll ask you who would you say are the most proper sounding rappers when it comes to just the way that they enunciate and the way that they speak their diction and all that who would you um, say honestly I would say J. Cole is one of them Cole's up there I, yeah. I feel like J. Cole's up there it's tricky with Drake at times, because yeah, I feel like you know, like most times Drake puts on a a, a black scent, if you will. But yeah, at his core, like I can hear, you know, the technical. Like I can hear the okay, you know, you <laughs> this is not what you're really doing. Those, so those are like the, the, the first the two people. Yeah. Um, and then like if I'm talking yeah. about women, I'm talking about like somebody like Jean Grey, who is like, you know, vocabulary out of this oh, world, nice. and you know, always so particular with what she says and enunciates her words. Yeah, for sure. I would say those types and. I would even say like a Wiz Khalifa type because Wiz, Wiz Khalifa just pronounces this stuff mm -hmm. so clear. So with, with all that, Rimble sounds way more proper and clear than all of them. Rimble has the most like, I always joke and say that he sounds like he raps in MLA format. <laughs> like it sounds like he got straight A's in English. Like the way he enunciates and raps on all of his songs is this, but it's it's hilarious because it's like he, he raps that way, but he's still talking about hood stuff. He's still a typical LA, uh, you know, crip type mm -hmm. and He's rapping about, you know, about about murder, about all the, the hood stuff, but he has a sense of humor with it. And you have to see his videos with it. The way he has his videos, where they're directed, it's like kind of cinematic. It'll be him in a barbershop just talking to somebody getting their haircut. And he's just animated. The way the person getting the haircut is focused, looking at him like, whoa, like captivated by the story. But Rimble's whole style is just different. I've never heard a rapper who was able to bring those type of uh, elements together. It's where he has that that very, very clear diction, like everything he pronounces, it's never even like, I'm partying. It's like, I'm partying. Like, it sounds so clear, but it's, but it's his works. And it's like, LA rappers kind of get clowned for sounding proper anyway, but he is like the top level of, of doing that. So he has a project he just released called It's Rimble. And he came from, um, the circle he came with is a rapper whose name is Draco the Ruler, who is kind of known as somewhat of a local rapper who still does get shine. He has a song with Saweetie. So Draco doesn't have too many huge songs at that level yet, but he is making waves in LA and he has just a lot of different 
a lot of different dope songs. He has one that's called the Gordon Ramsay Freestyle. He has one called the Ruth's Chris Freestyle. So even the names of his songs are just like the way he ties stuff together and just the the stuff that he says is this it's, it's all humor to it. So I, I appreciate him having that that upbeat type of style. And it's it's not necessarily party music. I wouldn't really play too much of it at a party. He does have a couple songs that you could kind of hear in that in that element. But for the most part, is this kind of like is this street rap? But he has a it's just a unique flavor to it. Like when you first watch it, a lot of folks kind of laugh. Like, is he serious? Like, does he really rap like this in every song? And it's like, yeah, he does. Like, that's just the way his style is. So it's one of the most unique things I've heard recently, but I'm definitely a fan of it. So he's probably in his early, early 20s, I would say, but I definitely want people to check him out. Do you think on the trajectory that he's on right now and, you know, being the type of rapper he is and always making sure to enunciate each word. Do you do you see him blowing yeah. up like mainstream, like one day we oh, turn on the radio and he's like number one song all over the country? I don't see him going at that level. I feel like, uh, how, how do I even describe it? Because I don't think he would get to that point. I think he's a type that at least everyone who is a fan of rap would be familiar with him. Mm-hmm. I can see it being that way. He'll probably get some dope features. And I think... I mean, he is a type that I, I think he has the potential to make hits. I think he can make some hits, even if they're more on the local side. I mean, because I think that the L.A. sound right now is it's so much different from the Atlanta sound and even the, the New York and East Coast sound that it's where, in a sense, it's kind of a local thing, but it is where people still do check for it outside of the state. Yeah. So I think it kind of depends on where he goes from here because his first project is pretty dope. Like It's his, his very first full project, and I think... I would say it's a good eight out of ten. It's not like a classic out the gate. Oh, he's gonna be a certified legend. Right, it right. Is like, I definitely think he has that potential just to be a the type that has a strong cult fan base. Because some folks kind of don't take it serious too. Because it's almost like because he he'll just say stuff like I think one line was like you spent a thousand on your burner and and you died with it. And it's just like <laughs> he says a little stuff where it's like. Oh, this is man. a little tricky stuff. I, I mean, yeah, so. hey, it's appropriate. Yeah. We, we were just talking about Biz Marquis yeah. and him having fun. Yeah. And and I'm glad somebody is, you know, they're doing their thing. They're having fun, but they're remaining true to themselves. Yeah, that's really what it is. And and I feel like it would be funny if it came out that he didn't talk like that in real life. Because it would be opposite oh, of a Drake. Man. It would yeah, be yeah, exact cause... opposite of a Drake. <laughs> no, yeah, exact be, opposite. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so if he talked like Nipsey in real life, it would be right. kind of hilarious to me. So That's wild. So yeah, so definitely. Yeah, so y'all check out Rimble for sure. So moving on, we're going to have our uh, drop segment. So what we're going to have this season, we're going to have special guests on a lot of our episodes. So we have a special guest group coming up called Revive. And we're going to discuss the classic songs from the 2010s in R&B. And following that, we're going to have Beat Match. And Beat Match... We got something special for y'all. We're going to do an album battle between two albums from the same artist. So y'all stay tuned. everybody welcome back once again this is behind the wheel season two episode one we are back to it so it's time for the drop for this episode's uh the drop we actually have a special guest i'm happy to introduce my brothers from uh the group called revive revive what's good with y'all nothing much so we actually did mention you all 
last last season we had an episode where we mentioned y'all for what we have called the uh, the fast forward segment, and me and EB are just fans of what you all do. So real quick before we get into the drop, uh, give us a quick introduction just to where you all are from and what you all are about. I well, uh, I'm Brian Dixon, but I'm known as Speed from Revive. Uh, I'm from a neighborhood called Stop Six in Fort Worth. Okay. Yeah. Texas. I'm Isaac Tate. Uh, I go by Antisocial. Um, I'm from Meadowbrook, which is also a neighborhood in Fort Worth. I'm from uh, Tiani, the way she couldn't be here, um, but she's also from Fort Worth, and we all go to TCU, just trying to make music. Okay. Yep. TCU, much respect to that. Much respect to yeah, that. Getting no education. So, okay, good to know. Good to know that. So, yep. So for today's drop, we're gonna talk about something. I know that y'all are R and B uh, group, and me and EB are definitely R and B fans. And a lot of times we talk about R and B from the past, but for this drop, I want to talk about something a little bit different. Um, we're always discussing those classic songs from the '80s and '90s, and now even the 2000s. You know, everything from the Poison to the the, the SWV week to Candy Ring, the Outstanding, Before I Let Go. One thing we always discuss now is um, looking in the future, we wonder what songs from the 2010s will be seen as classic songs. And it, it sounds weird because it's so recent and it's hard to even predict because like we've seen from the 90s, some songs got bigger like recently. Some songs get re rebirthed because of TikTok and social media. And some songs were huge at the time, but then if you weren't there in that moment, you might have missed it. But if we can just discuss, because it is so recent to us, the last 10 years, basically, going from 2010 to 2019, I want to see if we can kind of come up with maybe a somewhat of a short list of like the classic songs. And that would be for the, the slow jams, the mid-tempo, the upbeat jams, even like the hybrid, even like the R&B songs that have the rap features on it. Even maybe even the rap songs they have, you know, a lot of rap songs now were, were melodic. So it's songs from future in them that they sing the whole time. So it's like we might have to discuss is that R and B. We also have certain artists who might have been seen as pop artists, but they made R and B type music as well. So uh since y'all are our guests, I'm gonna let y'all go first. What what's a couple songs off the top of your head that you think from last decade? Will be seen as classics, like, like whether they were instant classics or whether it took a while for them to catch on. Right now, um, a song that comes to mind is "Window Seat" by Erica Badu. Mm. I think that was um, "New America." Yeah. Of, uh, New America Two. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 2010, right at the two. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, y'all know, um, y'all know who Anthony David is. Of course. For sure. Yeah. Or yeah, more. That's one of my favorite songs. I think that's the thousand and it's them it's in that time. <laughs> in that top, time frame. Top of the top of the decade. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I haven't heard that song in a while. I think somebody actually asked me to uh, play it at a wedding. So that's one of those songs that you heard a lot on like the kind of the 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 kind of the older thirty and up, thirty five and up R and B stations, but definitely didn't get the love that it should have got, but I think it could last forever. It had that timeless feel to it. Your song makes it to a wedding or at least the ceremony, it's kind of submitted. Yeah. So like best part, I agree. Or yeah, best part for sure. It, I mean, most of yeah. like those songs <laughs> are Fruity uh, by Daniel Caesar. He kind of had his legacy submitted because a lot of people were using that uh, major. This is why I love you. Ooh, uh, I think. Yeah. I mean, yeah. if if you walk down the aisle to a song, that's always going to stick with that relationship or that marriage. 
So that song never goes anywhere. My mom's wedding song was Ribbon in the Sky. So wow. Wow. coming up, I had to, yeah. you know, I got accustomed to that. So any song that you hear at a wedding, like Best Part, um, This Is Why I Love You, and I think I had another one, Best of Me by Anthony Hamilton. Yeah, Best of Me. Oh, for yeah. sure. You know, yeah. Yeah, so those types of songs, if you hear about a wedding or something, they're not going anywhere. You know, you're going to hear Kim at a wedding. Right. I think he had like, he had a couple of albums. Yeah, he about that took two or three. So, I mean, really, you can't go wrong Intimacy, with those. I think was That's definitely a good point because I feel like it's crazy that you mentioned that. I remember the first wedding that I can really remember going to was really a full 30 years ago. It makes me sound old saying <laughs> that, but it was like 90, 91. It was my aunt's wedding. I remember she came down the aisle to uh, Luther Vandross here and now. And it was probably a couple years old at that point. But I, whenever I hear that song, I think about that wedding. And it, it makes sense. I feel like every wedding I've ever been to, like even since then, any song that's, that's played, especially for a bride to walk out to, is like almost an automatic classic. Like It's funny that we're, we're so much younger and so hip-hop that I've had friends come out to International Players Anthem, which sounds crazy, but... Yeah, my boy came out to that like as the groom. I'm like, the whole crowd was saying, "Don't do it," and that was their hip hop song. But it's, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so it was just funny seeing that. But no, I definitely agree with that as far as any song that gets played at weddings. And Daniel Caesar, to me, he had that. He has two certified classics between best part and I would say gets you as well. Yeah, that's the one. Get I, you. Yeah, yeah. The one I couldn't name. Yeah. yeah, gets you. I think is definitely that's the first one I heard from him and. I heard that because I actually asked on Twitter, Twitter maybe four or five years ago, like, what are some of the best R&B songs of this decade? And like five people Im immediately responded with that. And I was like, who is Daniel Caesar? And what song is that? Because it wasn't like a radio song. And I heard it. And that first time I was like, yo, this is up there already. So I definitely agree with that. So EP, uh, what's a couple that you have off top? Um, off top, um, you, you said something interesting about like the wedding thing and that's the reason why it's cemented i think anytime we have a reason to uh remember a song or something to reference it to it's going to become an instant classic um mm. top of my head is mary j blige's don't mind i know people hear it and you automatically oh, wow. singing about the crispy chicken crispy like you're chicken, ready to talk about <laughs> the burger king but the song like people will never forget the song for that reason same yeah. thing with like blurred lines people yeah the song uh, that's a song lines, that yeah. you always every wedding reception i'm sure they're gonna dance to it but because of the controversy surrounding the song with the sampling it's something that we're just always going like it's always going to come up every time we mention it wow that's a good point that's a good point because like Blur Lines was so big when it came out, and you still do hear it. Like it's one of those songs that was more for the the older folks liked it the most because of the Marvin Gaye feel. And right. Of course, we can discuss all day if that should have got <laughs> this should got sued for that. Like personally, I don't think so. But either way, I mean, they didn't come come in with that. So, and that kind of leads to to what something that's a slightly different question. But like, do y'all consider it happy as an R and B song from Pharrell? No. No. <laughs> Because mm. I mean, the thing is, it, it actually sounds similar to a Marvin Gaye feel too, and it it's weird. I feel like it sounds straight from like the, I guess I would say seventies era. I think that would be seventies, maybe even sixties. That, that kind of bounced to it. I like the late sixties, late sixties kind of feel. Yeah. I mean, it has R and B roots to it. And it got too. so big. You don't think so? Okay. I think really yeah. honest because Brian mentioned how it has a gospel feel, yeah, but. I think God, yeah, yeah. delegate on the 70s time period, is that considered R&B or is that soul? And so 
Like I, I don't mm. necessarily like I have an R&B playlist on my phone, and yeah. I don't have Stevie Wonder flooding my R&B playlist. You know, uh-huh. my soul play. I, I, I create a distinction. Like I really don't have a Marvin Gaye song in my R&B playlist because I feel like the sounds are kind of different. Maybe the content may be similar, but the instrumentation kind of makes a difference. So when we talk about a song like Happy, I don't, I can't hear Happy mm-hmm. coming after Rain by SWV. I just feel like the feels are just two totally different feels. So I don't know. That happy- I can hear that. Yeah, I can. I can hear that. And it's funny you say that you consider certain things to be R and B and certain things to be soul. I was having a discussion uh, a few days ago and. The way I categorize it all is, yeah, R&B is a genre of music. I don't necessarily think soul is a genre, but I think soul can be found in almost every genre, depending on who is delivering it. So, yeah, I would never consider Pharrell to be a soul thing. But Jasmine Sullivan, like, I'm like, yeah, that's soul there, even though it's R&B, it's soul. So I think it's just interesting how you how you classify that. I actually need to think about that some more. That's something I've definitely, um, I've actually like researched that before because like y'all are right. I feel like we didn't really, I can't say we didn't, I wasn't there, but it feels like we always see the seventies as soul. you say seventies. So then you say eighties R and B more so. And I'm, I've always been curious on when that divide kind of happened because like, like you said, Marvin Gaye was really up to 83, 84 and we see him as soul. We mm-hmm. see Luther is kind of both, but more so soul. I feel like Anita Baker, you see her as maybe soul or R&B or even jazz. It's kind of tricky with with her because she was all the way 80s. Whitney Houston, you saw Whitney as kind of R&B-ish, pop-ish, where her first album was more so First album, right. Even talking about like Michael Jackson, uh, we are discussing that yesterday about how how Mike, you saw him as more of a soul. I mean, Motown was kind of a pop soul type of label a lot. So even when it came to those 80s, it was like, okay, now Off the Wall was more of a, I mean, a disco sounding soul type album, but then you get to Thriller and that was more on the pop side. So it's that is a, that's a discussion too. So with that, um, when it comes to these classic songs, two artists who we always debate because I saw Trey Songz actually asked a question about it um, a couple of days ago. He asked, why don't we see Bruno Mars as like an R&B artist? So why, why don't we consider him as R&B? And it started a whole debate. And it's like, I've, so, I've seen so many different sides to it. And I, I'm honestly still undecided. I think if I had to answer it, I would say he started off as a pop singer who may have wanted to do R&B, but R&B wasn't the thing to do at the time. That's not the way that he was marketed. And now he's doing what he truly did grow up on. But because he came out as a pop singer, because he's not black too, just to be blatant about it, it's where it's hard for us to identify him as a R&B singer. I know one girl who I know said that to her, he's not R&B because she can't see him singing soul music. She was like, there's singers that he sings better than. Like there's singers who aren't as good as him vocally, but they're more, more soulful than him. So because of that, she won't see him as R&B. But I'm still, I don't know. I'm still kind of conflicted. I agree with you 100%. I'm at that point. Because to be honest, Bruno Mars, when I hear him, I don't think of R&B at all. I think of pop, grenade, pianos, all of that. That's what I think about. I don't think 
I mean, to even veggie back off of that, um, when he started, the, when he worked with Mark Ronson and he came out with that sound, I compared him to Morris Day because of his his energy and his, like, I mean, the talking over the tracks and the swag that he had, um, it was very Minnesota-ish, Morris Day. It was kind of like he was biting off of that type of style, but to say R&B, I don't know, I feel like you would name a whole lot of pop classics before you would even get to the stuff he's doing now. And so it's like his his domination period was with pop. And then he realized, you know, he can make a few dollars off of our audiences. So he was like, let me let me switch it up. So I don't know. I agree with you. you know. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is complicated. I mean, like when you hear finesse, finesse is a direct derivative of like New Jack Swing, like I actually made a blend putting Remember the Time Acapella on top of Finesse beat, and it goes perfect even with the third verse breakdown because it's the same exact key, a very similar BPM and everything, but it's like it still kind of does feel like, okay, it, it still doesn't feel all the way true to R&B, but it's still enjoyable. I mean, people do joke and say that he's the greatest karaoke artist out there, and it's like, <laughs> I mean... It's an insult, hey, but I mean that's how I feel though. That's that's yeah. how I feel. I mean it's <laughs> it's like he is a pop yeah. singer who just so happens to have a couple R and B hits. Like you you can listen to I was talking about Lord's song Royals this morning. Like I was getting major R and B airplay. It was an R and B song mm -hmm. for those, you know, stations that were playing it. But I would never say Lord is an R and B singer. Like yeah. I would never say even like a Paula Abdul. I wouldn't say, oh yeah, Paula hmm. Abdul is an R and B singer. Like it, it, Interesting. It, yeah. it just doesn't. It doesn't. You know, they're pop sing. They're pop performers. Yeah. Let me let me fix yeah. the words. Pop performers there. So I think that he has made some R and B songs, and I think that he his legacy will be um, quote unquote saving R and B, which I think is is kind of stupid because I don't think it needs saving, and if it does, not by him. Um, but I think the majority of his fans would consider him to be pop. I don't think they would consider him R&B. I definitely agree with that. And I would say another similar one who I'm not a fan of, everybody knows it, it's almost a running gag on social media, is The Weeknd. I agree. I'm not a fan either. Okay, okay. It's just, I mean, and not to like, yeah, not to like bash him or anything, it's just, I just am not a fan of what he does. But regardless of that, like... I've actually mentioned him before, or people have have mentioned him as an R&B singer or one of the best R&B singers of the decade. And I'm like, just because he might be of the same ethnicity or race of who created R&B doesn't mean that he's an R&B singer. To me, he is definitely pop or electronic or something on that side. So with that, I mean, I don't even think there'd be any songs I would put from him that are R&B-ish in that lane no. as a classic R&B song. Yeah, no. I think people will hear, they'll hear a quick run or a nice <laughs> note yeah. and be like, R&B. R&B. Or even yeah, a description yeah. of, of skin tone. So we'll see that somebody's black and we'll just automatically put them with R&B and it's like, yeah, just because they're African-American don't mean that, you, yeah, yeah, he's not R&B. I agree with that. I, I agree with that. So. As far as some of my songs and uh, artists that I would say had classics, so I would say so. If I had to say my guarantee, just for short classics from last decade, no question, I would say one of the top two, maybe not even number two, is probably Miguel Adorn. 
I think Adorn is definitely up there, up there. I I get it. I mean, it's it's so many artists. I mean, it's where between the four of us, we might still end up forgetting somebody. Somebody might comment on social media like, y'all didn't mention so-and-so. So I'm like, hopefully we can, we can kind of at least mention everyone who had a potential classic. Because I feel like Miguel definitely had a couple. I mean, how many drinks is up there too? But I think Adorn is just that one that, as we said, weddings, I've played that for a lot of times as a first dance and... I played it as the first dance at the wagon last weekend, so that's definitely up there. I feel like uh, I would say so. It, it might not be the best R&B song of the decade, but the biggest one to me at peak that that was a pure R&B song. I'm still gonna say LMA boot up. It was one of those that did get kind of cliche, did get kind of played out, but to me, that's the only R&B song that you could play in the middle of the club at midnight when it was out and the whole crowd, even the guys were singing it. Cause even with like Beyonce had a lot of songs that got big in the club, we can, we can mention those, but I feel like her, her bigger songs were, were more like the formation, the Seven Eleven, the, you know, those were the, some of the bigger ones. So with Beyonce, we had love on top and party. Those to me are certified classics. I put those up. Yeah. Cause four, she came with 14 years ago and that was a pure wow. R&B album. So yeah, 10 years now. So that's crazy. Yeah, I definitely put those up there. For Jasmine Sullivan, I'm trying to think. I think Let It Burn is probably one of those. I definitely think that uh, Let It Burn is up there. So one that could be arguable, but I think I personally don't love it. But I mean, I'll give it I'll give it its respect for somewhat changing the landscape is Bryson Tiller Don't. Because Don't came and that kind of brought in that whole trap soul era and... I'm not the biggest fan of that sound, I would say, but when he dropped it, okay, okay. Like when he dropped it, I mean, it did kind of change up things. I remember the first time I ever played it, somebody had sent it to me, and I was playing it driving through Inglewood, and some girls just put up next to me was just like, hey, what song is that? And I was like, well, that's the first time that ever happened where I'm just playing a song loud, and somebody asked, like, who is it? And I definitely think even him titling his album Trap Soul, Bryson kind of ushered in a, a genre of singers that were able to emulate that same style of music. Because a lot of people ask the question, why does R&B sound different? Maybe because, I mean, when we talk about the early 2010s, we're talking about Anthony Hamilton, who was still a, 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 a charting mm, him, a true. Fantasia. Like all of the ones true. were kind of dominating the 2000s. And then we get Trap Soul, and it was kind of like Bryson kind of ushered in a newer wave. And so even him naming his album that, is indicative of possibly a genre change. So that's why I say I'm kind of leaning. I'm, I'm kind of leaning towards. Uh, I mean, not towards, but away from the R&B title because when you start to get down to these sounds, a trap soul type sound is just. I can't play that in the same playlist that I'm playing my Fantasia because it just doesn't feel right. So even him naming this album that I think he was letting the world know. This is the new sound. This is the new R&B. And we're living in, you know, that creation. That made sense to me. I mean, because, yeah, it really was what he explained it as. I mean, because it had that trap type of feel, that slow bounce, those 808s. It wasn't really any melody. And to me, that kind of descended straight from what Drake was doing on So Far Gone. And a lot of folks will kind of give Kanye credit for, for 808s and heart, heartbreaks. I mean, it all evolved from that place. But to me, I feel like Drake was like, when you hear what Drake did with, um, what, was, what was the song called? When, he, when they chopped uh, Between the Sheets in Half, the um, the one with him and um, and Lloyd on it. A Night Off. Yeah, so A Night Off, 
to me, a lot, of, a lot of that trap soul sound came from that, where it was just a real slow kind of like it wasn't really that much melody going on. There was no chord changes. It was really no like third verse where it's a build up to it. There were no, you know, it was kind of somewhat stripped down, a very stripped down kind of basic type of minimalist type of R and B. So I do think, yeah, saying that, I feel like overall, if I had to put Trap Soul under the umbrella of R&B, I guess I would mention Don't as a classic, but I definitely get that it might not really be directly R&B, so it's still one of those that's kind of debatable. So I would say something else that I would, I would count Frank Ocean, especially that um, nostalgia. I would say Thinking About You is a classic, and I don't know about y'all, I feel like Thinking About You is one of those songs similar to like when Lil Wayne made How to, How to Love. I feel like People's covers on YouTube were better than the original song, cause Frank Ocean. It's like a great reference song almost. It's a like, great reference. It's like a hear, demo. It's like a demo song. He, he yeah, the demo and and yeah. people who have um are more experienced vocally go in and they, you know, <laughs> they do their thing and now it's yeah. and, you know it sounds better for them. But he's the yeah. one who got the hit. Yeah, yeah. That's the way. I, that's the way I feel about that. Yeah, uh, I will always love you. Yeah, same type of deal. Another yeah. demo, yeah. Like you know, <laughs> she said she you know recorded this demo, yeah. and then Whitney just sat on it, you know, for you know a good twenty years, and then <laughs> was like, you know, I think it's time, and that's what happens. Yeah, that's, that's real. It feels like that with a lot of those types of songs. So, I feel like Frank had a lot of dope songs. Um, a lot of his fans will probably tell you he has thirty classic songs, but but as far as talking about the very top echelon of the R&B songs of the decade, I wouldn't put too many at that top 20 level, I don't think. So that's just how I see it. Um, so a couple other ones. So when it comes to Chris Brown, I feel like whether people love him or hate him, whatever, he was still probably the biggest overall R&B artist. What do you want to call him? R&B, hip hop artist, whatever you want to call him. But I'm trying to think what songs did he have that we would put at that level from the decade? I feel like, because songs like Fine China were dope to me but i wouldn't really put it at a classic level now songs like loyal so that even comes to this point a lot of that kind of what i call mustardized r&b which which was like the west coast rap influenced r&b songs we had a lot of those that came so we had like the jeremiah don't tell him we had the amarion post to be we had chris brown had loyal a lot of those songs do we see those as being future classics in the same way that 2000s we had like the the you don't have to call from Usher. We had the Mario's just a friend. We had those upbeat songs. I don't know if these songs are gonna make it to that level, but I agree with you. Like I think some of Chris stuff from like 2009 on down, well on up, excuse yeah. me. When he first came out, you'll find some R&B classics in that. But his yeah. stuff from 2011 up to now, it's real pop. It's real. It uses a bunch of R&B elements, mm -hmm. but I think it's real pop heavy. I, I was looking, and this is definitely not a classic in my book because I don't know if a lot of people really know, but one of the, the major R&B songs I think he did have was Back to Sleep. Back to uh, Sleep was banging. There was a yeah. lot of artists, R&B artists, Keith Sweat, Tyrese, they was actually remixing. Like, they had spoofs of it where they were all on the same track and redoing it. I think that was his last one, but I wouldn't call that a classic. And then when you mentioned You Don't Have to Call, by Usher, that's such a high standard to live up to. I don't even think. I agree with that. I get that. I mean, because Chris had a couple in that same lane. He had Privacy. He had um, the one where he remade the SWV. The um, yeah. 
Shang Chu. He had that. And uh, so I would say, I mean, just as a DJ, I might say No Guidance could become a classic, maybe. As a DJ only, because that's it's two years old and it's one of those like I mean, it was all vocals, even though it's Drake, it was a all like it was all singing. It's not the most musically dense song, but I feel like maybe even in the sense of a club banger, like in 15 years, the kids who are in their teens might still love that song. So no guidance might get to that point. I'm not sure if it's a certified classic, but it's it's up there, I would say. I would say so. The last few years, we had a lot of the, uh, the women artists who came out and blew up. So we had the the her, the Chloe and Halle. We had SZA, Ari Lennox, um, Summer Walker. From within that era, do you think anything that they made from that 2017 to 19 era could possibly become classic? I feel like SZA Weekend might be up there. It's I think Weekend is one of those that might be at that level. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think her. It'll always be played. Yeah, yeah like no, yeah. They'll, they'll they'll never stop playing that song just because it's one of those that when it came out, it took everybody by storm. Like yeah. radio was playing it, you know, social media, everybody was tweeting about it, everybody's, uh-huh. you know, listening to it on streaming networks. But it's a good song. Um, but it's one of those things where I wish somebody better was singing it sometimes. <laughs> I just, yeah, that's it. Like I, sometimes oh, I man. just wish another person yeah. was singing it, but it's a great song. And it is a song that 10, 15 years from now, when it comes on, the people who were living during the time that it came out will be like, huh. you know, it'll take them right back to that period of their life or whatever was going on for them when it came out. Yeah, that's definitely true. I feel like it, it might have that type of impact. Her whole album was like that too. So, I feel like with her, I'm trying to think of what song her had in that period. I feel like Focus was dope, but I, I wouldn't see it being a classic classic. But yeah, best part with um, yeah, definitely yeah, best part. Best her and part Daniel. is the only yeah. one. I don't think I don't okay. think she's had any because we didn't get any um we didn't get any huge. We didn't really know who she was for a while. And even when she was going under um, the other Gabby, name, Gabby, Gabby Wilson, yeah, yeah, like she has some, like some songs. Then I liked, but nobody knows them. They won't be seen as classics. And her album, yeah. her debut, just came out now in 2021. So wow, technically, yeah, technically, true. like huh. nobody. Even though she made a huge impact at the end of the decade, nobody will associate her with 2010s music because of when her mm. debut came out and because now it's like 2020 and 2021 have been her years like she's blowing up yeah. now before That's true. That's not true. so much kind of the same with chloe and hallie because i actually have followed both of them throughout the decade like i first heard about her when she was gabby wilson when she performed at the bet awards 2014 mm-hmm. and with chloe and hallie i first saw them 2011 when they remade love on top and they didn't really really start making songs at that that level probably until last year so i feel like the same with them. They're on that cusp where they came out last decade, but they'll probably have a lot more impact in this decade to come. So I'm not sure if Chloe and Halle had any classics from last decade because their their main album came out last year. So right. it's more so 2020 and up. And um, who else? So I would say... has been out for a yeah. minute, but uh, when she came yeah. out with Seat at the Table, I think that was two. Oh, oh, we, definitely. Solange. <laughs> That's, that's up there, a, yeah. Definitely, yeah. yeah that's yeah. one of the Solange top. Solange had that one. That's, that's a definitely one. like top five, probably. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely put Solange up there for that. It was one of those things that kind of... I'm not going to say it was a Michael Janet type thing, but it did. It gave her her own lane and crowd where her crowd yeah. was 
writing for her, her so hard, they were like, we like her more than Beyonce, and Beyonce right. would never come with something this real. And so I definitely feel like that that put her on where it, that was perfect for her for that timing. Like she was able to step outside of Beyonce's shadow without having to compete to the point that Beyonce probably looked and said, whoa, I wish I could do something like that. So yeah. As far as um, speaking to those artists who've been around for most of the decade, but just started to get bigger, do y'all think Anderson Pack has any classic songs from last decade? Because he had a lot of dope music. He had some dope projects. I love the Malibu. Um, I love songs like Heart Don't Stand a Chance and um, the track he had with Schoolboy Q. I'm not sure if he has any like one standout classic from that period. As, I don't as think far he has R&B one standout. Lane. Yeah, not yeah. an R&B. I think um, R&B, yeah. we, we can talk about his production all day, every day, but when it comes yeah. to like an actual R&B song that he released and he's singing, I think he has great ones, but I don't think any of them will be considered classics. I think classics. Anderson I falls be. in that category of um, you like his music because you're a fan of his work, but he's not. I think in order to have a classic, you have to be able to reach people outside of your genre. So, you know, you yeah. may, like, Daniel Caesar's best part is touching people who don't listen to R&B. Like, I don't, mm. you don't necessarily have to listen to R&B to hear that song. I think in order to hear Anderson, you have to be tuned into that specific genre of music or even be tuned into him. Because when it comes to him, I fall short on, on a lot of his music. And it's not because I don't care for his work. It's just not radio. And even though radio is not a big thing, I still use that term because radio is what will get your song going. And Anderson's really not radio. Anderson is kind of like, you have to be in touch and in tune with him to know what's going on with him. Outside of that, I don't think he really has a classic that we can be like, yeah. yeah. It makes sense. I feel like with him doing Silk Sonic, I feel like that might take him to the, the next, next level because a lot of folks didn't know who he was. Like, my mom, like, you know how we judge stuff based on what our parents know because they're older. So, like... My mom was more familiar with like Philip Lawrence than Anderson because Philip was always right there next to Bruno. So mm. the fact that you see Anderson next to Bruno now is like, I feel like after if they actually do a project, and then if then after that, of course, Anderson will probably do a solo project. After that, I can see it blowing up bigger from from that point because Bruno's giving him that boost while he's kind of giving Bruno a little bit more edge. So I can see that kind of working uh, hand in hand with that. And uh, I think one thing that we did miss last decade was R and B groups. The closest thing we had to a group was more of a band, I would say, with the internet. With the internet, I feel like, girl, uh, I'm not sure if it's classic, classic. It's a, it's a great song, though. I don't know if it's, as y'all said, I don't think it was known enough to really be classic at that level. But I think it's one of those that's kind of a cult classic. Like, if you knew about them, you definitely would ride for that song. Yeah, I think I like what you said um, when you said that certain people like the song has to be known outside of the specific genre maybe outside of your fan base because every i'm noticing like every song we're naming these are songs that have actually gone pop so is that what will make a song classic like even ron when you named uh luther's here and now i'm like mm, that's that's a good thing like that song was a huge song for him it went pop so is it possible for an r&b song to be a classic now without being a pop song or something that's not widely associated with everything else. Hmm. That's a good point. And I feel like I can't say R&B is making that return because like earlier in the decade, in the middle of the decade, it felt like 
you didn't really get any R&B songs at the top of the charts unless it was a Robin Thicke type song. So I feel like in the last couple of years, it has been where R&B is making a stronger comeback. But for most of the 2010 decade, most of those songs were... Because even, even like Daniel Caesar gets you, I'm not sure if that really made it outside of the R&B like crowd. I think Best Part probably made a bigger reach because it's more of a wedding song. But yeah, I don't think... Um, Get you really got to that that point uh, as much. I'm gonna say yes and no because okay, um, yeah. Like I, I think of Fantasia all the time. I don't think Fantasia is being played mm. on top radios, but she is a staple in R&B. When I see you, when that yeah. when I see is, you, any type of song from Fantasia, we getting up and we dancing, and she, she <laughs> you know, like R&B yeah. off the top. But um, yeah, I don't know since. The beginning of that whole pop crossover stuff, and now it's just like with—I well, don't know who it started with. I'm gonna think about Mariah and Whitney's time, and how you know they were—they seen as R&B, but a lot of people didn't like them when they first came out. A lot of black people, especially, did not like Whitney when she first came out because they was like, "That's pop," but the white folks thinking it's R&B or whatever, you know. And she kind of put R&B on the map a little bit because mm-hmm. now the white folks like it because you know Whitney doing it, and she's cool now or whatever. And so now, if you're not, if you can't cross into the pop radio, nobody else, nobody is hearing you. And so, oh. I think like like Bron is saying, he's, it's context. So, in what context are we classifying the word classic? Are we saying classic as in across the board classic? Or are we saying genre specific? I don't really know country music, but country music has its own classics. I can't never say that this country song is not a classic. It is a classic to those who listen to that music. Now, if we want to say overall, can we pull a song from that genre and say this song crossed over? Then yeah, you'll find those. So I think it's just the context in which we're speaking. Are we saying classic in general or genre specific? And then if it's genre specific, now we can narrow the because the playing field is different. Now the, the the fighting level is different. We don't necessarily have to look at Billboard 200, but the R&B charts and let's see how that ranks. And so it's it just depends on what we're considering classic. Like I said. Fantasia was a great example. She's not really being played on Kiss FM. But I don't think you can go to a cookout of ours and not hear at least one Fantasia song. Yeah, this is true. That is true. So I definitely agree with that. Um, So before we wrap up this segment, um, are there any other random songs or artists you think um, might have an arguable song in there or... Potential songs. I think we've mentioned most. I'm sure it's always somebody else that that we may have forgotten about. But I'm thinking about there were a lot of artists who had great music, but just just at that classic level, I feel like it is kind of a short list, honestly. Yeah, I think we'll we we will remember more artists as being classic, but not necessarily a lot of songs that they released. Yeah, that's that's definitely the way I see it. Pieces of Me by Lettuce. Lettucey has some dope ones too, and I feel like with Lettucey, she's one of those who might have appealed more to that kind of the, uh, I guess you would say the 35, 40 and up type R&B. I guess you call it adult contemporary, but even within that lane, I think she definitely has some classics for sure like that. So And I think not oh, definitely. too deep, but I think really it's the it's an age demographic that'll assign these classics, because I think one of the issues that Chris Brown has is, I feel as though personally Chris Brown makes music for his age group. So, like, if you listen to, like, Poppin', he was a certain age when he made it, and that demographic was able to vibe with it. I don't necessarily think the 40-year-olds at that time really understood the the power behind Poppin' like maybe we did because we were that age. 
And so Chris Brown is going to always make music based on the time period he's in. So I think what demographic decides, decides what a classic is. Because our generation may listen to a Solange song and be like, this is a hit. And my mom's generation may never hear Solange. And they're like, that's not a classic. So it's, it's really, dem- it's a lot that goes into it. Genre, as well as age group, who's classifying what. So, I mean, it's, it's interesting. That's definitely true. I mean, overall, that's, that's the beauty of R&B and just black music as a whole. I feel like at this point, we have three and four sub-generations within each genre that we have. So there's R&B that appeals to the 25 and under. We have some that's more 25 to 40. We have some that's 40 to 60 at this point. And only a couple artists can really hit all three demographics. It's not too common that you'll see that happen, but it's a couple that have reached all three, like the Beyonce types. I think she does hit kind of all three, but it's not too many Beyonce's, obviously. So, so... So overall, I want to thank you all for coming in and joining us on this episode. Once again, y'all are our, our, our first guest ever. So to everybody who's out there, y'all make sure to check out Revive. Let them know where to find you at on social media. Yeah, um, you can follow us at R-E-V-I-B-3-D. And that's on Instagram. We don't have any other social media at the moment. And stream us on all platforms. Check out our new project. It's called Isms. There it is. There it is. I appreciate y'all for tuning in all right so to conclude this episode we're gonna finish this one with a beat match we're gonna do a beat match between two albums from the same artist and whether you love him or hate him at this point when these two albums came out i think he was undeniable he was on top of the world and it's one of those things where it might just be a a matter of preference but i mean we'll go ahead and we'll have this beat match and see who comes on top so if it's your first time listening me and eb have this beat match each and every episode where we take two albums songs artists whatever it is and uh we battle them you know compete with those and we have our producers melissa and the lady go ahead and judge us and tell us who came out on top with that victory so we both get to speak for a few minutes we have some rebuttals and then we have it decided by our judges our judge and jury aka the producers so for this one uh eb i'm gonna ask you what would you say your favorite kanye west album is out of all of his all of his albums, Graduation is the the one that sticks out for me. That that one always mm. be the one that I go back to. Even when I cancel Kanye, I might still go back <laughs> and listen to Graduation yeah. every now and then. I got you. I mean, that's probably my second or third favorite. It's <laughs> tough because I mean he he came out the gate with so many great albums. Those first three, but. I would say it has to be late registration for me. I have to go with late registration. That was his second one, that sophomore one. So, so EB, I'll let you go first. So for everyone listening, EB has three minutes to decide his case or to explain his case. Then I will come back with my three minutes and we will have rebuttals and it'll be judged. So EB, let them know, why would you say that Graduation is Kanye's best album? I think because it kind of concludes the, the trilogy that he came out with. When he came out, a lot of people did not know who Kanye was as a rapper. Now, he had started making noise as a producer, but as a rapper, we weren't really paying attention to him. By the time we got to late registration, Kanye was... It, it it was getting a little old for me. It was it was it, even though it was the second album, it was getting a little old because it was like okay, you're doing the same thing everybody else is doing at this point. Like the only difference is you're actually producing your own stuff. So you know what else can you do? Like by that point, he had relied so heavily on these old soul samples, and it was like we already know what you're going to do. 
when graduation came out, huh. I think he realized his genius in a different way that he hadn't before. And he moved on from what well, in the first two albums, he's just recognizing that he has the potential by graduation. He's like, Oh no, this is me. And I got this. And the songs reflected like you got stronger. You got, can't tell me nothing. You got good life. You got flashing lights. Like the song titles let you know the headspace he was in when he dropped it. Because of that, I think it was also his most personal album up until that point. It was less about the world and all this social commentary that he was doing on the first two albums. And it was really more about like who Kanye was. Like he had progressively gotten better both as a lyricist and a producer. So now he was experimenting with like these synthesizers and this electric sound where he wasn't doing it on the first two albums. Then he was also experimenting with different genres and different sounds from different genres. Like he was listening to a lot of house at the time and a lot of rock, like bands like U2. And that actually influenced what he did on the album production wise, because he wasn't relying on the same old R&B and soul samples. Now he was able to throw other things in there. He was able to not restrict himself so much with, you know, the classic hip hop starter pack, but he was also able to explore, you know, what bands like U2 did that captivated audiences or, you know, what people in Chicago were doing with house music. And as we know, he's from Chicago, so it's a big thing for him. In this album, he also, like, changed up his flow a little bit. Like, he rapped at a slower tempo, and it was more of a throwback to, like, the late 80s and the golden age of rap. And he even mentioned it on The Good Life when he said, 50 told me, go ahead, switch my style up. If they hate, let them hate and watch the money pile up. So he knew what he was doing. It was very intentional whenever he stepped into the studio to record this album that he didn't. He wanted it to be nothing like the album before. He wanted it to be nothing like what people expected from Kanye. And he wanted it to be nothing like what everybody else in the industry was doing. I think he was a trailblazer in those ways. Um, it was a conscious effort on his part to do less skits and less filler. Okay, okay. I mean... With that, with that, I definitely, I see what you're saying. I feel like graduation was a slight bit of a, not even a slight bit. It was a, a, a big step. It was an evolution of Kanye. But yet I still feel like registration just hit even harder in every way. So the thing was, graduation was a little bit more experimental. And with that, it was a little bit more hit and miss. Because I mean, I mean, Stronger was definitely a dope song. But I mean, I don't really need to hear it at this point. And then he had a little bit more filler. I mean, I'll say a lot more filler with Drunken Hot Girls. Like, between his first three albums, I would say that's by far the worst song he has. It's probably Drunken Hot Girls. Like, that song, I don't know. Maybe he was drunker than the girls were at that point when he made it. But that's just the way I saw it. But to me, with Late Registration, it was just like the perfect moment for him. I feel like, um, yeah, you say that he was kind of relying on those soul samples, but you can kind of hear the evolution in his sound already. He was experimenting with different types of producers who were playing keys on top. He had like Warren Campbell uh, playing keys on certain songs and just the way that he was evolving his sound at that time. And I would say just the overall flow of late registration was just like it felt like a complete project from top to bottom. As much as you say he didn't do skits on graduation, those skits are some of the best skits. I might say top two, three albums in the 2000s when it comes to skits. Probably the best outside of like the the, the Dog Pound, Snoop, and the Wu-Tang type skits. I feel like, and, and I would say Bad Boy too. But I mean, that Broke Fire Broke, 
I was in college when it came out, and like that was just the best thing ever because we seen these Greeks on campus, so and we were broke. So seeing him make fun of that and having the broke fire broke, it was just the most perfect type of thing to tie in the whole project. And even how he flipped it at the end, like we heard this brother's eating, we heard this brother eats every day. He had on new shoes, you know. It's like the sense of humor for him to have that with that. But aside from that, just the music alone. I mean, he had. How do I even begin to, to speak about it? I mean, you talk about the uh, graduation being more personal. I feel like it was the most personal because, for one, he had Roses. Roses is, to me, one of the most heartfelt songs ever. Like, I remember the first time hearing Roses and just really being stuck to where I couldn't even move listening to it because I was just tense. Like, what's going to happen? Like, is his grandma really going to die? And hearing hearing the line about magic, like, you're telling me if grandma was in the NBA, everything would be okay. And the nurse wanted me to sign some T-shirts. Is you smoking reefer? Like... Hearing that and just the way he produced that song, like, yeah, he was known for using those soul samples, but that thing had no drums. The whole verse was just so tense because there's no drums. And as soon as the hook comes in, the drums come in. And I'm like, this is brilliant. Then the way he ended the song with bringing in the vocal sample with the vocals uh, on top of that, like the live vocals. So he was really experimenting even with that. And then you have songs like We Major, which... That's one of the most craziest productions I've heard. The way he, the way he just uh, composed that, all the different instrumentation going on with that. He had different keyboard players on it. The way Nas got off, he had the break. Can I talk much again? And kept the beat going. Like he was experimenting a whole lot with this album. And then when you talk about the singles, like Gold Digger. We still talk about Gold Digger. I don't know why, but white girls love it. Okay, maybe they do love it because he said they leave you for a white girl. That's why. Okay, it just hit me. It just hit me. But yeah. It's crazy that you <laughs> that you say Drunken Hot Girls is like the worst song ever. I mean, come on. You got to be, listen, the beauty in graduation is that not only did he have people like uh, Dwele singing on the album, but he also had Most Deaf. He had DJ Premier. Like he was he had these huge artists singing hooks like they was Patti LaBelle. Like on his album, no rap features. His only rap feature was Lil Wayne, and that was intentional. But other than that, everybody else was singing because he really wanted that to he wanted him as a lyricist to stand out as opposed to someone else. And then if you talk about like the singles, I mean flashing lights was huge. It's still huge. Like, you know, I wonder. Good Life, Stronger, like, Can't Tell Me Nothing was one of those songs that was everywhere. And even when it gets on now, Graduation is like my gym album because it's like nothing you can't do. And I think that's what Kanye realized about himself is there's nothing I can't do. Like, he was doing EDM before EDM even became mainstream. Like, he released his album and he started setting trends that I'm not even sure at that point he knew that he was setting. Like... He was being a trailblazer without even knowing it. And then the skits, Kanye himself admits, he's like, yeah, that was kind of corny. It was like antics. And not only that, he says a lot of songs from late registration were filler. That was Those are his words. He says they were filler. So he made a conscious effort to make less tracks with no filler. I think that alone tells you that when he made graduation, like his mind was in a total different place than it had been previously. And he went into the studio with a mission. And I think he accomplished that. I think late registration is a great album, but next to graduation, I don't think he knew his potential. All right. So 
I mean, it's funny that Kanye said that he had filler on late registration because personally, I don't see anything as filler. I think everything served its purpose. I mean, I will say graduation has the advantage of having stronger singles. I'll give it that. But even with that, I feel like for one, that Diamonds remix with Jay-Z, like he even mentions on graduation that like he had, I remember he did that verse on 106 in Park and he performed it acapella. And just the whole, that whole verse was so fire. And he was like, you know, over there, they, you know, uh, was it over, over here, we died from drugs over there. They died from what we buy from drugs. This, that verse was so cold. And then he put Jay on top. And as he said, Jay killed him. And I'm not a businessman like that whole line, that whole verse was so epic. So, and that was almost like an album cut in a sense because the single was already out, but he had that. I mean, bring me down with Brandy. I don't see how you can have Brandy on an album cut and make it filler. Hey Mama was one of the most heartfelt songs because he's really talking about his mom and it, it, it made it hit even harder when his mom passed because like along with Dear Mama, like Hey Mama was one of those songs. It was like a happier version of Dear Mama. Like it wasn't about her being a crack fiend. It was about her supporting him even with him trying to do, you know, I can relate to that about him uh, wanting to do music, but his mom wanted him to, to do college. Like, Hey Mama, people play that at weddings. We're talking about wedding music. Like, Hey Mama is one of those rare rap songs that, that get played for, uh, you know, the mother-son dance. So you had that. And to me, all the songs hit in different ways. Addiction, just him talking about what addiction could be. Uh, Drive Slow is fire. I mean, he had features, but those features all fit. It was never a case of rappers trying to outdo him or who had the best verse. Like, Everybody fit on there perfect. Paul Wall came on there and just slid so cold. Then the quick little skit with Common, My Way Home, the way that was, it kind of set the tone for us knowing what was going to come next, you know, with between the uh, being forever. Like, it was just the perfect timing for Common to have that that collaboration with, with Kanye. So. I see what you're saying. I, I mean, I think a lot of what he did with the album like i said i think it's a great a great album but he had not explored enough outside of chicago or outside of hip-hop at that point to really release something like groundbreaking like you could tell he was listening to a lot of folk music just because the storytelling on graduation is so much better like it was a narrative like each song told a specific story like almost every song and then the awards he was winning, like Grammys and American Music Awards for Best Rap Album and BET and NAACP Award nominations. Like the samples are so diverse. Like you sample Michael Jackson, Public Enemy, Elton John, Steely Dan, and Daft Punk on one album. And it was a cohesive album. Like each song told the story, went right into the next about who Kanye was and how great he was becoming at the time. Um, it's not as R&B influenced, which I appreciate because I think sometimes we have the trouble, well, now especially, separating R&B and hip-hop. And then the big thing that he had. Uh, that's it. That's it. And for me, Man, that the bell. way so some, something you said just kind of clicked. It almost reminds me of somewhat off the wall in Thriller. I feel like Graduation was a bigger album than Late Registration. It got more awards the same way Thriller did with Off the Wall, but... For most fans, they really do love Off The Wall because it was more pure. It was like, it didn't have as many different uh, out, outside influences. Like, it didn't have as wide of an array of sounds or, or samples. But every song on there hit, I feel like every single topic on there hit the same, you know, hit, hit in different ways, but it, it hit at the same level. It showed his personality and the highs and lows. It showed how happy he was just having fun with the bars on Gold Digger and Celebration. He's talking about, you know, Telling this son, you my favorite accident. Like it still had that personality that, that we used to love Kanye for, but he still had those 
songs where he spoke from his heart, like like he did on the addictions. And you know, it, 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 I feel like overall, I have to roll with late registration. It was just to me, I'm not gonna say it was the peak of his career because he did so much after that, but it was just what really pushed him out there. The first one almost felt like kind of a kind of an accident. So he solidified himself with that. So with that, that is our argument. We're gonna let our producers, Melissa and the lady, go ahead and deliberate on this and we'll see. So who would y'all say or which album would y'all say is the best or better between the two Kanye albums? We got to start with the lady and her concert experience. Uh-uh. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. you know she has that, that experience seeing Kanye. I'm sure of it. So Oh my god. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Before before he went off the wall, she was she was there. I did. I want to say it was like around 05. Um, since then, I'm not really sure if I have. I would assume so because I see everybody else. But anyway, um, I this this one was I don't know. I have favorite songs on on each album, but I felt like Graduation has songs that I still want to hear right now, and I felt like late registration at the time it just well all the the skits and some of the songs did feel like fillers to me um even though i love certain things like we major i've played it all the time uh, i think i'm gonna go with graduation um just as a, a more concise product got you okay all right all right all right zero one for me right now melissa what'd you say <laughs> <laughs> loved Loved. I just want to emphasize, loved Kanye. Yes. <laughs> um, and uh, I love both. I love both these albums equally. So um, that was good going into this with like a blank slate. So I'm just basing this on the arguments, and I am going with EB on this one. Graduation. Okay. So. Graduation. We, we. Who knows? Maybe you'll come hey. back. Maybe you won't. All right, we'll, we will see about it. We'll see. So congratulations on that. You know, I mean, they, they both are some fire albums, you know, so you Definitely. can't go wrong with it. They both better than Yeezus and whatever <laughs> else, you know, so that's no question. So so it's all pre, pre-MAGA Kanye, so however you want to call it. But thank you all for being tuned in with us. Make sure to uh, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Uh, let us know, you know, how you feel about everything that, that we have discussed. And please send us an email if you have any suggestions for the drop, beat, match, fast forward, or rewind. Send that to behindthewheelspod at gmail.com. You can follow me on social media at DJRTISTIC. That's on Instagram and Twitter. EB, where can they find you at? Uh, you can find me on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Everything is EB for Prez, EB the number four, and then Prez is spelled P-R-E-Z. There it is. There it is. So I appreciate y'all for being tuned in, and we'll be back for y'all soon. So please spread the word. Let your folks know about it. And uh, also, hashtag Behind the Wheels Pod. Let us know what you feel about those classic R&B songs and about the beat match. Let us know if you, you might prefer my dark uh, black twisted fantasy over both of those Kanye albums. Or, you know, you might prefer Yeezus if you got... I ain't going to insult you, but anyway, anyway. <laughs> so I appreciate y'all for being tuned in. And we'll see y'all next time then. Behind the Wheels is produced by Melissa D. Montz and the Lady Set. And the music is provided by Epidemic Sound.